The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 49 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if any shady customers ever tried to hustle Taurus with a high-stakes game of Marvel's Overpower? I'm Adam. And back on the podcast after a long absence, dealing with life in the real world, a man who could use a break for comics conversation and knows that Denny O'Neill is not the man who started the Denny diner chain it's my co-host michael canetti it's nice to be back a lot of craziness going on i'm looking forward to diving into this issue which believe it or not by looking at the cover i actually owned this issue hey the rare issue of wizard you actually read at some point Luckily, though, there is another former co-host of mine that I'm reconnecting with tonight, a collaborator on the recently defunct Sequel Quest podcast, now living life as the co-host of the Star Trek podcast, Trekology. He's a man who would make a great professor at the Xavier School for gifted youngsters, except that he's nowhere near bald enough. He's really just making Michael and I extremely jealous of his saber-tooth-like mane of luxurious blonde hair. It's Jeff Campbell-Smith. How you doing, Jeff? Good. I do not have blonde hair. I am sorry to say. (laughs) (laughs) You're from California, right? Well, you're from California. I know, but my hair is black. Yours is a very light brown that did get sun-bleached. Well... As a kid, I did. I had like platinum, like blonde hair, but really, that's back in the day. Now, this episode features my much more practical friends who have had to put up with my crazy life choices and <laughs> pointless spending over the years on collectibles. So I'm actually worried that this was secretly like a subconscious intervention that I set up. I have learned one thing in my years of knowing you. If there's something you want. There's no talking you out of it. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff's favorite thing they used to say to me when we were kids. My dad, you know, would supply me for comics and whatever else. He'd be like, oh, is that money burning a hole in your pocket, Adam? Oh, oh Mr. Pope, we you give yourself some money, Mr. Pope? Well, I, 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 could, I could see Adam, like, as a kid, getting the shakes. If he's got, like, a $2 in his pocket. <laughs> The five and dime. He's like, oh, what can I get? And let's say, like, kid, this this is 16-year-old Adam, and we would go to a swap meet, and I saw him pay, what, like, a dollar, a dollar fifty for some, like, dog chew toy or something in the shape of Batman? We were all like, that thing's not worth ten cents, but Adam's just like... (laughs) You're like, here's my wallet. How much do you need? You can't oh. put a price on my joy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, that's how it's always been. Oh, this is going to be Adam's hazing night, I feel like. This yeah, be- <laughs> definitely. That's on, yeah. Well, Jeff, you know, we're talking about the old days, and I think we need to go way back to your origin story.
so as far as comics are concerned, like I, I was, I was definitely really big into comics, especially fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Uh, I had a, a really close friend that was also into comics as well. Uh, the, the local comic book store to us was up by the University of uh, California, Irvine, which is about a nah, 15, 20 minute bike ride for us. And I still remember, it's one of those memories that you have because he started off as like a newspaper type stand and then he actually bought the space so he could open up his own store and I still remember that smell that first time that I went in there which is not the same smell that most comic book stores have I still remember the very first issue that I saw like comic book issue was the new Fantastic Four with Hulk and Wolverine and Ghost Rider and Spider-Man and I saw that and I was like, what is this about? And so I'm pretty sure I bought that, that issue that day. One of my first comics actually came from Planet X over at the, the UCI marketplace there as well. So I definitely, I do that store well, but I'm curious, Jeff. So after that initial purchase, what did you start getting into? What were your favorite comics to read? Well, I feel like I had a pretty, typical especially for that would have been 89 90 92 was kind of my era and uh, i had a almost stereotypical teenage intro where i started off with fantastic four and so that kind of got me into the like they know everybody and they're just kind of in the middle of everything but not terribly consequential to anything and then that kind of tied me into x-men which you know was huge back in the jim lee and chris claremont days and that was right about the time when uh the relaunch x-men number one came out and that which i think is the cover of this issue of wizard right is an homage to that uh sort of yeah i mean it's a very similar you know charging forward type of thing yeah yeah so i got into x-men and then i remember my dad had like an antiques store in garden grove and one of the the vendors in there had a stand of comics but they were all these old ones that they didn't know they were all from like the 70s and 80s and stuff like that and they had a number of new teen titans which I was kind of into. I mean, you know, you got the young Flash and you got Robin and, but then they had the new mutants and the new mutants, something about that just captured me. And then I kind of got into X-Force afterwards, but that wasn't really my jam. But then I kind of worked my way backwards and new mutants was kind of, that hit me most in the right spot. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. I mean, this is something I always think about our friendship that it was just like this total missed opportunity. We never talked about comics. Right. We, we spent all this time together, like all our free time was like just hanging out. And literally somehow comics just did not enter the conversation at any time. Michael, do you have friends like that where like you found out they read comics and you didn't ever discuss that? Yes, I have several where like <laughs> when we became friends in, let's say, eighth, ninth grade, you weren't talking about Batman. But when we were like 25, we were like, oh, <laughs> you know, I had all these comic books back in the day. We should have talked about them. Like, why didn't we? I'm like, like girls. Like, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Late teens. Yeah, you're not. And especially because post death of Superman, you know, the, then there was the kind of the, the decline of the comic book era. So it mm-hmm. wasn't 
as much in the zeitgeist as it was, I think, in middle school. And Adam, like you and I, didn't know each other in middle school. And I'm curious, Jeff, did you ever read Wizard Magazine? Like, as you were collecting, did you ever come upon an issue and flip through it or buy one to take home? Um, I mean, I always saw them. They were always there in the comic book store. I feel like more often than not, they were polybagged because they would come with some freebie of some Trading sort. card or, or yeah, uh, or a disc. AOL disc, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, Michael, over the New Year's holiday, I put together a spreadsheet of the first 100 issues of Wizard and all the pack-in items so that we could accurately report that part of Wizard history to the listeners. <laughs> That's how I relax. I, I, uh... Okay. <laughs> so part of me says, of course you did. Right. That's, that's just you. But on the other hand, my wife would be like, go live in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> my wife was napping. She had such a 2021. She's like, I'm sleeping. So I was like, well, there's nothing else going on here. Kids are playing video games. I'll just tack, tack, tack away here. So you, I just, you went through a hundred issues to make a, spreadsheet yes of what was in the issue like what was in the poly bag or if it had a wizard half offer or whatever like additional items they were including with it like the posters the the cards exactly because people like on social media are reaching out to us like hey did this issue have this or this and that so like we're starting to become that resource so just thought I'd make it a little bit easier if i'm gonna go look up each individual issue i'd rather just have it all done and then i'd be like yep here's I, your answer i hope you backed it up to the cloud because your your luck with backing things up is a problem <laughs> <laughs> mr technology throw it at google drive because you're gonna <laughs> but it was always a little too pricey for me and it was also the thing that my perception was that was a pricing guide is that that was if you want to sell comics you buy a wizard to tell you how much your comic is worth and so i was not in the selling mode so i never yeah invested in that okay yeah and that's what i figured it was kind of you know a little bit also as you're phasing out that's when yeah. wizard was really on the rise and that's where we're at right now here in this era i mean this is going to be interesting for you to kind of hear about what was going on in the world of comics as you kind of stepped away and, and but there's still plenty to discuss i'm sure so i think i see something in the mailbox over there i think it's time we get into willie lumpkin's mailbag So, Tom Fink of Claremore, Oklahoma, he has an interesting question to Wizard about a vinyl record. <laughs> Why is he writing into Wizard about a vinyl record back in the day, Jeff? Dear Wizard, could you please clear something up for me? I kind of remember a reflections on a superhero album from the 70s that had songs on it about Spider-Man. I ask everyone I see at the conventions about it, but they just look at me like I'm out of my mind. If there ever was such a record, could you please tell me about it so that I won't wonder if I was just a preteen hallucination like Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, or Richard Nixon? Thanks. Tom Fink, Claremore, Oklahoma. All right, let's see what Wizard had to give some insight and comfort to Tom. Oh, it's real, all right. Around about 1975 or so, Rock Reflections of a Superhero, a Spider-Man album, hit the nation with the force of a runaway chipmunk. Once I was helpless, now I rescue those who need me. When I can't 
band Music Lover Lee narrated between Spidey-oriented songs like No One's Got a Crush on Peter and Dr. Octopus. Dan even appeared in print ads for the album, telling the world that, quote, It's an honest to Aunt May rock and roll album that's the answer to any disc jockey's prayer. Heck, it's even got David Sanborn on sax. This musical missive was available on album, cassette, and the ever-popular 8-track. <laughs> so, it's funny you say that, because... Again, I only skimmed this thing briefly because I didn't have a lot of time. My grandmother had the 8-track. Whoa, I what? remember you way back when saying I my grandma had this 8-track thing of Spider-Man, and I didn't make the connection. Yeah, now that we have reached this point, I have to now dig it out of my, my grandparents' basement. I hope they still have it. Yeah, see if, see if they've got it. I Do you have an 8-track like, player? <laughs> no, but I'm sure, I, I'm sure if I find this and I mail it to Adam, he'll buy an 8-track. Oh, that's player. true. That is that's correct. True. That is absolutely the reason for me to finally own an 8-track player. But this album, guys, had you ever michael obviously had heard of it but jeff any concept at all that such an album might exist no but i'm not surprised i mean as a star trek fan they had william shatner and Le- leonard nimoy recorded a spoken word album so if someone will buy it they will record spoken it. word leonard nimoy's bilbo bilbo oh, bilbo baggins oh. <laughs> That's not spoken word. Well, it should have been. (laughs) So I sent this to you guys to take a listen to. What was your initial thought just in the opening twangs of the guitar? I can actually say, in conjunction to re-listening to it now and remembering what it was when I listened to it in the 80s on an 8-track, I literally only listened to one track and I used to skip over the other ones (laughs) because they were kind of boring. And, like, the melodic tones of Stan Lee sort of doing sort of narration was never really interesting to me as a kid. And it's still today. I was like, boring. Fortified with a confidence that his super strength had given him, Peter Parker tells Gwen Stacy how much he cares for her, but in such a way that she recognizes the maturity and depth of his feelings, the shining innocence of his idealism. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, what did you think? Because you are a lover of classic rock, particularly in the 70s. How does this match up? I mean, it it was fine. I mean, musically, (laughs) it was adequate. So Peter I 
guess I would have, well, no, I don't know if I would have expected it to be like some of those really bad Disney albums. Like you get like, you know, Mickey Disco or something and it's just like, it's cringy. But this is, you know, fine musically. The lyrics are like, you know, ridiculous. My spider sense is tingling clear. But if you don't listen to the lyrics, the music is a little repetitive and uncreative, but, you know, it, it's fine. I did think it was interesting, the Stan Lee voiceovers, because pre-MCU and other Marvel movies, like, now everyone knows Stan Lee's voice, despite your impression of him, Adam. But the rest of us <laughs> all know what he sounds like, and this is way before that, right? And so it was really Well, yeah, well, it's interesting, because, yeah, on the Marvel cartoons of the 80s, he narrated those, so oh, that's where most people probably heard his oh, voice okay. for the first time, yeah. But, yeah, this is interesting for me, because I remember seeing the album mentioned in this issue, reading it in 1995, that five years later, in 2000, I saw it being sold as a 25th anniversary CD that had just been released. It was at my local comic book shop. So I picked it up. I had to have it. And I just, I listened to it all the time going forward from that. I mean, like, it's not an album that I just, like, tossed in a corner. Like, I still listen to it. <laughs> that does not surprise me in the sense. Not at all. The- <laughs> Not at all. This when is- you know that one of my favorite albums is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming out of their shells album, of course this fits right in. Right. Jeff, when, <laughs> when, when those figures came out, he was like a rabid dog. I gotta find those figures. I gotta yeah. find that thing. He was a madman <laughs> on a mission. <laughs> The somewhat simplistic nature of the music feels a little Kiss-like. Is that horrible to say? Oh, come on. No. No, because Kiss is not – they were not trying to do fancy, you know, whatever, like, hey, we're like the new Beatles. That wasn't who they were. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very 1970s. I mean, 100%. I mean, you got tambourines (laughs) going to the background. You can count on. I mean, they're layering a lot of like, just like, what was the pop music of the time? But it's funny because there's actually a lot of the songs were written by one of the guys from that 80s, 90s acapella group, the Manhattan Transfer. Do you guys remember those guys? They would, sh- I think they were on Home Improvement once. I mean, they, they were always singing songs around on TV, but the album itself, like, it, it gets progressively worse, but there's like songs that sound like 50s doo-wop. There's like a song that's like Frankie Valley, you know, it sounds like it Belongs on the soundtrack to Greece. Oh, 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 oh,
it is just it is so cheesy and fun and i yeah i, I would love to see somebody just adapt it into a full-on musical with like the the full cheese factor in effect but well, well they tried to do a spider-man musical and it didn't go well so i don't that's think gonna... the problem julie tabor you should have paid attention to this album and not tried to get you two and bono involved <laughs> they don't understand spider-man <laughs> well that's not a bad point <laughs> All right, so that's old news, but in semi-less old news, Michael, I think it's time we get into the headlines with... (laughs) Wizard News! (laughs) Okay, in our top story tonight, Fabian Nicieza, regular writer of X-Men... For the last several years, as well as New Warriors and way too many Marvel stories and comics to even mention, is now the ex-ex writer. As Marvel reports that he has removed himself from the writing team because it's monetarily rewarding, but not creatively rewarding. So, who is his replacement? None other than Mark Wade, who has also taken over writing duties on Captain America at this point as well, while continuing to write The Flash at DC. How is that even possible? Like, how is that even (laughs) He was the busiest man in comics, Mark Wade. Speaking of Mark Wade, they just announced today that he's doing a Batman-Superman miniseries thing. Oh. And it's got five, like, Batman, Superman villains in it. They showed some snippets online. It looks really, really cool. Like, it's very classic look, too, with the drawing, and, and it's very vintage-style Batman, which I really, really like. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Jeff, this is what Michael brings to the podcast, which is the actual figure on the pulse of what's happening in comics now, which ah, I, I know excellent. nothing about. <laughs> he capped off at about 2001, and then I take over from there. <laughs> Does the name Fabian Nicieza mean anything to either of you guys in the comic book world yeah unfortunately i mean he was kind (laughs) of he was kind of the guy that again as a new mutants guy like he was the one that kind of came in after louise simonson ruined it maybe it feels like she did then he came in to turn it into x-force i mostly remember him from the executioner song which was the last crossover that i was really into but his big thing was cable he created cable and back then cable was the big oh thing. no he didn't he didn't create him oh, didn't he he was just the scripter so this this is the big like point of contention like deadpool and cable and all these characters so rob liefeld <gasps> put a dollar in the jar <laughs> i've been a very bad boy since you've been away michael <laughs> we gotta tally it all up <laughs> but yeah so rob liefeld created <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just that fabian nicieza was the scripter on all his comics oh, at the time so okay. he kind of tries to take credit for like well yeah well i added to those characters i made them what they were but rob liefeld not believe in that <laughs> he's like i created them okay but jeff what do we have next here gi joe comics has finally found a new home after ending their decade of being published at marvel throughout the 80s and 90s though top Cow and Extreme Studios were both rumored to be in the running. The winner is Dark Horse Comics. A Hasbro representative says that this is due to the fact that Dark Horse has done quality work on licensed properties such as Aliens, Predator, and Star Wars. So did either of you guys ever read G.I. Joe comics? I did have one issue of a G.I. Joe Dark Horse comic. I think I just bought it for the cover and never actually opened it. (laughs) I don't know why. I did that sometimes. 
Adam? Yeah, so for me, I definitely did not read G.I. Joe comics. I had a handful of the toys, but I never got into the comics, although I remember seeing them around, like other people who are super into that, but that was never on my reading pile for whatever reason. So. I, had, I had so many G.I. Joe action figures. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable. And with the problem with the G.I. Joe action figures, to digress a little bit, is after a while, they would literally almost spontaneously combust in my hand, like legs would fall <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, well. There you go. Michael has a history of destroying his toys somehow, as yes. we've covered on past action figure fury segments on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, now, next up here, Topps Comics is having great success with their X-Files comic book, and will start now publishing an X-Files Comics Digest, which is said to be the same size as Disney Adventures magazine. You can't have a more 90s comparison than saying it's the same size as Disney Adventures magazine. But bizarrely, Topps is also publishing the Barbie Twins swimsuit comic art calendar with the well-endowed blonde twin models being drawn by John Byrne, Adam Hughes, Julie Bell, and many more artists. So I have to ask you guys, do you remember the name The Barbie Twins? No, I do not. So it just hit me like a ton of bricks as soon as that was mentioned, because at my main comic book store I went to in the 90s in Comics Unlimited in Garden Grove, I remember walking into the store one day and seeing Barbie Twins calendars and comics on display, and it just, it confused me. I was like, are they superheroes? Did Mattel cross the line into adult <laughs> entertainment? Like, I don't know what is happening here. Oh, no. For th- yeah, for those who don't know, the Barbie is without the E, so I guess that's how they're not getting sued. But it's also, as I did some research, their mother's maiden name, so they have a legitimate claim to use the Barbie name. But I always thought they were, like, Swedish or something, because they're very, like, European, kind of weird-looking. They look like aliens to me, I'll be real honest with you. They're not They're not attractive, but they were raised up, you know, this supermodel kind of, I don't know. But they were from Los Angeles, so they were, they were homegrown gals there, Jeff, but they even got an e true hollywood story in the 90s they were on maury povich like they they were media sensations wait, for a short wait, period of time hold on wait a minute now this this rings a bell because they were, they were real people right oh yeah they were real yes i know these people yes i remember seeing this e true hollywood story i remember this <laughs> I do remember this. Holy cow. Is that bizarre? They, like, I don't know why they were crossing over into comics, but they were. They had those, like, giant collagen lips. Yes. Oh, yeah. I remember these, too. Wow. So, fans of the Barbie Twins, if you didn't know that they had Topps comic pinup calendars and everything else. Of there, course they did. There you go. <laughs> In other news... Batman and Daredevil will be part of a crossover one-shot in 1996 with the two urban heroes teaming up against Two-Face and Mr. Hyde. Writer D.G. Chichester says the whole story has this duality thing. Well, because they both have two identities, I would assume that makes sense. It's a kind of redundant statement. Yes, sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is me thinking out loud uh, Ch- <laughs> Chichester reveals that despite Daredevil's recent change to the armored look in Marvel Comics Matt Murdock will be in the classic red suit with the Billy Club for his story I hope so because that 
armored look was not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this, but I never got it. And I, and I oh, remember, really? Yeah, yeah, being the Batman fan you were, I thought this would have been in your long box right now, in your basement. Again, it was 1996. I was a freshman in high school. I wasn't going to the comic book store. <laughs> I remember, yeah. I remember seeing it. And I was like, "Oh, I want to buy it. Oh, I can't buy it." Yeah, no. People, people will know. People will know. <laughs> now, when I remember, Darede- I just saw an issue where Daredevil switched to a yellow costume. Well, that was his original costume was like yellow and maroon. Yeah, and then uh, it changed no. to all red. Yeah, it was like a mustard right. color with maroon. You know, yeah. Onions. Well, there was one, I remember seeing just a cover where he's standing on a tombstone. I think it's a tombstone of Matt Murdock, and he's wearing, like, yellow, and it just was, yeah, off-putting. So, he's done a few times where, like, you know, gotta go back to basics, Daredevil, and he'll, like, (laughs) pull his old costume out of the closet kind of thing and wear it for whatever reason. Just sort of like Batman has done many times, like, oh, I gotta go back to the yellow chest emblem, or I gotta go to, you know, Mm. it's just... They do it for like a shtick to sell books, you know, every so often. All right. It's reported that Now Comics, who had been publishing licensed books based on the real Ghostbusters, Married with Children, The Green Hornet, and The Terminator, have temporary, temporarily suspended publication, which, according to our research, ends up becoming a permanent closure. This is after a decade in the business. So did anyone read any Now Comics? I did buy one Married with Children comic recently, mm. and and I have it somewhere. I gotta find it. It was like a Married with Children 2099, which is pretty funny. <laughs> wow. Um, and a couple years ago, I think Dynamite actually rebooted Green Hornet, and uh, Alex Ross was doing all the covers, and I bought the first six or eight issues of it. I read the first two. It was really, really boring, and I just kept buying it because of the Alex Ross covers, and I was like, I gotta stop. See, that's what I was doing at this time, is I was buying the Green Hornet, because they also had, like, really nice painted covers flipped inside. It was like, this is okay art, but it's not, doesn't match. But I actually, recently from now, I tracked down a sequel comic book series to the Fred Savage film Little Monsters that they published. So that was kind of cool, just to see that they had continued on with that license and i have like you know an issue of the real ghostbusters up here with my ghostbusters collection but i was never like dedicated to any one of their you know series that you know they're mostly licensed properties when they got into original stuff wasn't anything that that caught my eye jeff did you even know now comics existed no i mean the closest i I used to get the grab bags from time to time from the comic book store and i did get one issue of terminator 2 which i'm assuming is the same because it's just the adaptation of the movie which was fine. It was just an adaptation of the movie. And I'm like, I've seen this movie. So <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a highlight for me. I don't need to read the book now. I see what happened. <laughs> oh, nothing's different here. Well, guys, you know, before we get into our table of contents and discuss the meat of this issue, it is time to choose the winners of our profit action figure giveaway contest announced on our mini episode 47.5. Now, to enter, just to remind you all, our listeners were asked to write in a defense of Rob Liefeld. 
who we have a rocky relationship with, but the guy was hugely popular in the comics community at large in the early 90s, and we need help understanding the point of view of those who celebrate his career, okay? Uh, so we are going to read the entries from you, the listeners, and Michael will determine who makes the best argument and thus deserves a limited edition white profit action figure, which was donated by our past guest, Sean Ani from the Splash Page eBay store, a great place to find vintage 80s and 90s comic book collectibles. I will tell you, he originally gave them to me so I could send them to Michael and Steven as gag gifts, but I know them well enough that they would just be mad at me. <laughs> so, so now we offer them to you, our loyal listeners. But go ahead and take it away there, Michael, with the first one. All right. So Nerd X Core says, In defense of Radical Rob, even if you aren't a fan of his art, you still gotta admit he shook up the industry and made old creators try to catch up and modernize themselves. Perhaps creating a good mixture of modern and classic art and storytelling to come together in the 90s. All right, so that's one for you to consider there, Michael. Jeff, who's this next one from? Beatles Toy Box says... Rob Liefeld seems to be have become a punchline in recent history. His antics throughout his history in comics have overshadowed how influential he was on the comic book boom of the 90s. He took essentially what was Marvel's less popular version of mutant Hogwarts and turned them into super ripped action stars pulled straight from a Schwarzenegger flick. His later creation of Extreme Studios was well named because that's exactly what he gave us. His art, which is criticized now for various reasons was back then dynamic his facial expressions and costumes really brought something to his characters yes even the giant guns and millions of pouches bordered on the ridiculous but those later issues of new mutants they gave us a revitalization of these characters everyone wanted the first appearance of the time traveling mystery man who was their new leader x-force one sold five million copies even accounting for multiple issues being bought to get all the cards that's still a lot of books. When, then when he left Marvel, he crushed independent sales records with Youngblood. But drama, apparent lack of focus, failure to meet deadlines, and believing his own hype all contributed to the downward spiral. I'm not a big fan of his work nowadays and view his old runs similarly to how I feel about Zubaz and Hammer Pants from when I was a kid. <laughs> they feel like the coolest thing in the world at the moment, but time has provided new experiences to judge them by. I can look back with an embarrassed fond but I don't plan on revisiting the modern versions of them anytime soon. I don't know if that's singing the praises of Rob Liefeld. <laughs> it's well, in there. it does. It has mixed, both sides. You know, they, they say when you like doing a review on somebody, you start with a positive thing, you give them their quote-unquote feedback in the middle, and then you close out with positive <laughs> Michael is an educator, so yeah, he has... Uh, <laughs> that's kind of how it feels. All right. Now, uh, past guest on the show, there is no favoritism here with this, but a friend of Stephen Sapellis, Bob Winters, wrote in to say, Say what you will about Rob Leefield, but he is critically important to the world of comics and art in general. Many aspiring writers and artists draw inspiration from numerous established creators, and Mr. Lofeld is arguably <laughs> one of the most prolific talents of arguably the most extreme era of any medium. The Iraq War was in full swing, and Rob Lyford knew 
knew it was time to forego subtext and nuance. Audiences were desperate for heroes with preposterously exaggerated physiques, graphic violence perpetrated with wildly unrealistic weapons, and pouches. The 90s were a time of gross materialistic excess, and every comic book character needed a place to keep all the stuff they compulsively bought at the mall. Remember those? After a couple of years of churning out increasingly intense, over-the-top material, Rob Field Day finally achieved what many of his contemporaries believed to be impossible. He found, quote, the line. Like I said, the 90s were a remarkably extreme era, so any creator finding the line would already have been an amazing accomplishment, except Rob Liftoff didn't stop at the line. He crossed it repeatedly. He courageously ventured, unironically, into the realm of self-parody, presumably to show all of the creators of the future what can happen when torsos become too big, or shoulder pads too spiky. I'm sure many thought such things impossible, but Robe Minefield proved them wrong. (laughs) Again and again and again. Today, the comics industry has refined artistic standards that we all enjoy largely due to Rob Eyelid's willingness to go above and beyond the commonly held concepts of taste and the limits of human anatomy. Rob Blofeld crossed the line so the future generations won't have to. And for that, we should all give him our thanks. <laughs> Golf clap. There we go. We're just So, Michael, who, who has convinced you here to love Rob Liefeld? None, really. But, <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, we have three profits to give away, so I say we give them to everybody. I think that is fair. Originally, we announced it as two, but I had one I was hanging on to, and these are so gosh darn good that we think that everybody deserves a profit action figure. So, gentlemen, thank you for entering, sending your thoughts along, and entertaining us. We will be in touch. You will have your white, exclusive profit action figure. Will it make you maximum profit? Time will tell. I do love Rob Eyelids. <laughs> That made me laugh a lot. Now, Jeff, you know, as we talked about this, you have like a full run of New Mutants. You've mentioned it was your favorite Marvel comic. You briefly mentioned your thought when Rob Liefeld took over as artist and, you know, plotter of the book eventually. So did it make you want to read it more? Was it more exciting initially? Or did it just ultimately drive you away when Liefeld came on board? What I loved about New Mutants was already gone before Liefeld got there. Liefeld brought a new energy, I thought, to that and X-Force. I feel like X-Force is more his deal than the end of New Mutants. The end of New Mutants, he was just trying to kind of like, I'm forced to do this, let me just get this off my back. And then X-Force was able to be his thing. And and I, I was not as into X-Force as I was New Mutants, because it was a, it was a different thing. It was a an action strike team, and that was not what I was reading. So interesting. Okay, well, you are a hundred percent on board with what Rob Liefeld tells as the story. You know, you said Louise Simonson was driving it into the ground. That's what he said. He said when I came on board, I could just see readership was going down because it was just the same stuff over and over again. It was old hat, and so you know I needed to give it a fresh coat of paint there, and that's what he did. And yeah, the rest is history. So very interesting that as a dedicated reader, you were seeing the same things. I think that she did different things by killing off all of my characters. 
And that, that <laughs> I was not a fan of, and that was one of the reasons I think readership went down. All right, well, now let's get into our table of contents. So, guys, issue 49 of Wizard, with a September 1995 cover date, features an X-Men fold-out cover by Joe Maderera, the new artist on Uncanny X-Men at this time, and a rising star in the industry. More about him in a little bit. But the two sides of the cover image were actually separated and recolored as part of the Marvel Overpower collectible card game. (laughs) So, at this time, so many of these covers were being given the Fleer Flare coloring and that's why you know they could look kind of crazy uh, or at least the style of them this was one that was destined to have that done to it but this issue came packed with one evil ernie mini comic titled straight to hell which was a lead-in to his upcoming miniseries an everway collectible card game promo card which was from wizards of the coast and so they were trying to get you excited about a new game that wasn't magic the gathering and also some order forms for exclusive marvel comics that were Malibu comics after they've been acquired and now these were not being offered through Wizard like a Wizard half. They were just like, yeah, you can order these comics. Here's an order form. So I thought that was kind of weird. But like we said, this cover was by Joe Maderera and cover story that is titled Steady Costumer. It's an interview with the then 20-year-old artist that became known as Joe Mad because nobody can say Maderera. It's explained that Joe started as a 16-year-old intern in the Marvel offices who started showing his samples around, ah, very wise, which landed him the gig of doing an eight-page story starring North Star of Alpha Flight in Marvel Comics Presents number 92. And actually, X-Men editor Bob Harris wouldn't even hire Joe until after he graduated from high school. He then did some fill-in X-Men and Excalibur issues before becoming the artist on the first Deadpool miniseries in 1993, which made him very high profile, and then went on to work a few years later on the age of apocalypse where Maderera ended up redesigning the X-Men for this alternate reality event. So now, Joe Mad has gotten the go-ahead to redesign main continuity X-Men as well, as is what Wizard is reporting, with his number one character to alter being Cyclops. Quote, I think it looks all wrong with the hair sticking through the way it does now. Wow. See, that was my favorite look, that Jim Lee thing. I was like, this guy's so cool! And then he's like, nope, go back to the skull cap. It's also mentioned that Joe Mad created Blink as a one-off character who was going to die, but then she got brought back and she just went on to be such a popular member of the X-Universe, even eventually getting a live-action cameo in X-Men Days of Future Past, so that's kind of cool. Curious for you guys, do you have an opinion about Joe Madera's work on X-Men and Beyond, or just his art from this cover? Like, are you familiar with the name? Uh, I'm not. But it does puzzle me that, like, looking at this cover, I don't know how you guys can be so harsh on Liefeld and okay with this guy. I mean, look at those arms. <laughs> those are those are ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, they're bad. tree trunks. And look at all the pouches that Cyclops has. I mean, it's just, one, this might be further in defense of Rob Liefeld. What an inspiration he was is that this is <laughs> this is the school of Liefeld right here. Well, what's interesting 
is that Joe Matarera says, actually, he's very influenced by anime, and if he could just do a 100% Japanese-style illustration, he would be. And so the article, he says, like, this is like he's easing into it, giving it a very stylized look. And Bob Harris, the editor, said, we wanted him on the book because we feel like every couple of years, the X-Men needs to be redefined. They need a fresh look to be interesting. That's why he's having to redesign the costumes and everything. He's like, we need a new X-Men for this era, for 1995. Like, what I find interesting is Cyclops has these, like, side muscles and, like, Latin muscles that <laughs> just, just seem inhuman. And, and this is one of the funny things about that with a lot of comic book artists when it comes to characters that are based of this earth yes cyclops has mutant powers but he doesn't have mutant biceps and lats right. that's sure like it's just, i agree i mean it looks very much like the animated series sort of inspired yeah. this look i don't hate it but yes some of the muscles don't look very Mm-hmm. great uh i do like the way wolverine's head is drawn in this cover mm. I, I i like that i like the way they did the bone claws oh i didn't even notice that you're right yeah, yeah. and i don't like i don't like uh beast's face though it's very generic <laughs> See, that's what I was going to say. I feel, and I don't know if he's the one that kind of inspired, because my, my feeling is 95, they did move into an anime style, uh, uh, yeah, that's become very popular. Yeah. And I would say on this cover, Beast's face stands out because it doesn't fit. Because Beast should, I mean, Beast and Wolverine should have very similar facial features, mm-hmm. but Beast has absolutely smooth skin, yeah. whereas, you know, these other hairy characters don't. And for me, again, the, the anime style, I don't know, I grew up with the 90s and 80s version of the X-Men, and the, 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 the anime one, I wasn't into it. Yeah, well, and this is definitely, though, not the last we've heard of Joe Mad, and he goes on to be very popular and uh, gets his own creator-owned series, so all in good time. But this next article kind of talks about what he had to do to get noticed, right? It's titled, How to Sell Yourself. It is an article for aspiring comic book artists on how to present your work to publishers to get hired as a professional, with tips being given by working pros like Mark Silvestri and Dan Jurgens, Jerry Ordway, John Romita Sr., you know, and publishers, writers, artists like Brian Polito and Jim Shooter, and many more. So the most important tips, I feel, are the most basic. For example, if you want to work as a penciler, don't show pages of art that you have inked. <laughs> show them that you could be a penciler. Uh, if you want to call back, put your name and contact info on every page. <laughs> like, this advice they, they kind of presented is mostly based on the fact that these are mistakes that these veterans made in their early days. And so they're trying to prevent the next generation from doing the same thing. So unfortunately, though, the downturn in the comics industry sales that Jeff was alluding to earlier is cited as the reason that it's harder than ever to get work as a comic book artist at this time. According to Dan Jurgens' quote, you're going to have to be more talented to get in now than you had to be two years ago. Back then, this industry was sucking up any kid who could hold a pencil between his toes. It took a lot of people who weren't ready. Now things are more competitive. The problem, though, nowadays is 
the idea of if you want to be a penciler, be a pen, like you become pigeonholed in that and you get stuck in that sort of thing. Like you're only going to be an inker. You're only going to be a colorist and you want to be able to showcase that you can do more than that today in order to get yourself exposure now, which is interesting. Yeah. It feels like you have to do your creator own thing where yeah. you either do it all or you do the thing you're not known for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm curious, do you guys know anybody that ever tried to get into comics professionally michael i know you work with somebody who is a professional now but i do you know they would go through the, the Kubert school and I, I actually contacted your buddy joe about that i said like michael said you went to the Kubert school a while ago he's like oh i took a correspondence course he's like i don't even think i did all the assignments and i was like oh <laughs> but he, he showed me his art though and he's a really great he's got a very unique cartoony style he's got a him. very unique style and and it's pretty cool i do know of a few people that i went to college with with that were you know film majors but were incredible illustrators and you know tried to get published a girl that i dated her previous boyfriend who i was in film class with actually published a bunch of comics independently and had a publishing company for a while and then i think it it tanked but he was he was making comics with a couple people we went went to school with worked on one or two projects for marvel but mostly it was all independent stuff through either image or boom at certain times jeff you know any artists who uh tried to get uh, into the comics world um not growing up the closest thing i have is um one of the the folks from our church was actually an early artist on veggie tales and then he went on to do uh axe cop and now i think he's uh (laughs) he just joined a new company so oh that's pretty cool yeah so ethan nicole yeah, it's kind of safe for me. Like, I, I mentioned on our Zero episode way back when, uh, that I had, you know, when I went to actually visit the offices of Extreme Studios, it was kind of a backdoor visit for my friend's dad, who was trying to become a comic book artist. But that was as far as I ever got. But this is actually going to be an upcoming guest on The Wizard Files, where my wife just got started. Uh, her boss is like, oh, my brother's been in comics for years. Like, he, he's a comics artist. He works for DC, works for Disney. And I was like, what? So it's a guy named charlie lagreca so uh i'm gonna be interviewing him on the wizard files because he was like involved in like comic conventions like he's kind of handled all sides of things so that's kind of an interesting connection that i'm making now but speaking of aspiring artists guys a greg capullo's crash course drawing tutorial this month is about how to draw women in comics Ooh, a very popular topic at this time. But Capullo states that, quote, Most aspiring comic studs draw their women like men in drag. My own mother would tell me that the women I drew sucked. (laughs) Capullo explains that women have different bone structure and major anatomical differences from men, yet suggests that you do not draw breasts and butts too large because, quote, it throws off the figure symmetry. He ends the article by saying, quote, By the way, my mother now tells me why women are beautiful. Oh, see, it had a happy ending. He learned the basics. He got it done. <laughs> <laughs> Coming to America is an interview with Brazilian comics artists Roger Cruz and Mike Diodato Jr., who are getting a lot of work at this time from all the publishers. Uh, Diodato has actually been working since the 70s and, and had already done work for Malibu Comics, Innovation, and Continuity Comics, these smaller companies, but at this time is known for drawing these beautiful women like Greg Capullo was telling us about kind of going against Greg Capullo's advice. <laughs> uh, 
uh, Mike Dudenauer Jr. had drawn Wonder Woman at DC. Now he's drawing Glory at Image. But as reported in issue 47, now he has been given the opportunity to redesign Thor for Marvel with a more extreme look. It is also penciling the Avengers. Jeff, I sent you a picture of this new Thor. What yeah. you thought? It's a picture, all right. <laughs> Describe it to Michael. I'm sure Michael has seen it sometime, but try to describe to Michael what you saw in this picture. I mean, it almost looks like a, like some sort of like a bondage outfit. Like it just, it doesn't go well with action, I wouldn't think. I mean, it's got, (laughs) the colors are very peculiar. It's got kind of like an open midriff and. Is this (laughs) the Thor, Thor from then or Thor from the movie coming out? No, no, no. (laughs) <laughs> this is 1995 Thor, but you're right. Because the Love and Thunder like teaser poster gave Thor quite a peculiar look. And I was yeah. like, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. It's this like deep navy blue with an open midriff and like a crotch guard. It's, it's, <laughs> well, they, a lot of them know. had like the cod piece gigantic at this time. Right. And that's true. That's true. So it's, it's in, in case you didn't know he's male, let's <laughs> emphasize that. Yes. The bigger, the better. It's only fair based on how they were drawing women. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, on the other side, though, Roger Cruz rose to prominence on fill-in issues of X-Men books at Marvel, especially the recent X-Men Alpha and Omega stories that were the bookends for the Age of Apocalypse event. But now he's getting his first ongoing title as the penciler for Youngblood at Image. And Cruz also provided, I, I was actually corrected on our social media when I posted this Brazilian edition of Wizard Magazine. I erroneously said it was the first issue, but it was actually the third. And this Brazilian reader was like, no, no. No, no, no. The first issue was a Roger Cruz cover. I was like, oh, okay. So that's kind of where I know I'm from. But do either of those names mean anything to you guys, Roger Cruz or Mike Diodato Jr.? It's not ringing a bell. I mean, not the names, but the the work. Yeah. Now, Michael, I think this next story is right up your alley. So why don't you read this one to us? Keeper of the Night is an interview with Batman editor Denny O'Neill about his history writing comic books. O'Neill was famous for his collaboration with Neil Adams on socially conscious comics in the 1970s featuring Green Lantern and Green Arrow teaming up, which were some of the best stuff. If you've ever read those stories, they're super fun. Them going across America, saving the day, and most notably, a controversial issue where Speedy, Green Arrow's sidekick, becomes a drug addict. And it's one of those like very iconic covers that you, you can't forget. About this, O'Neill recalls that he and Adams went around together and interviewed drug rehab people. He also mentions that it was the, the first comic book guys invited on talk shows. Hmm, interesting. Neil and I were possibly the first comic book celebrities. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, but I would say probably Stan's probably even then was a celebrity. Of his contributions to the Green Arrow character, O'Neill states he'd been around since the early 1940s, but he didn't have a personality so we could do anything we wanted to him. That's pretty cool. O'Neill went on to write and edit Spider-Man, Iron Man, and Daredevil at Marvel after Green Arrow and Green Lantern was canceled. But he then returned to DC in 1984 after difficulties with Jim Shooter, which not the first time we've heard that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Since then, O'Neill has been writing and editing the Batman books, overseeing the Nightfall saga, and many more seminal stories. The interview asks if Batman will ever retire, and he replies, In my own private biography, when Bruce Wayne turns 50 at the latest, he'll stop this. And I hope, for his own sake, discover women and the joys of home and children. Discover women. <laughs> Sounds like the same wish he has for comic book readers. <laughs> <laughs> so, should Batman retire? Well, after you answer, I'll give you what's happening right now in comics, so go ahead. Jeff, what's your take on this? Well, it was interesting. I was actually listening to your guys' old podcast when you had the editor from Wizard on. Oh, yeah. And they were talking about Batman and about how, like, Batman is the, is the, the pure version of that person and that Bruce Wayne is the false image or whatever. Yeah. That's the disguise, basically. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Which I thought was really interesting. And this answers the question in a very long way. But I heard an interview recently with Michael Keaton who said his view of Batman is that he could have cared less about Batman. He said he was fascinated about Bruce Wayne. He yeah. wanted the whole story to be about Bruce Wayne. What kind of a person dresses up like a bat and goes and punches people? What does it take <laughs> for that to ha like what do you have to go through to become that kind of a person and i thought that was fascinating so and i love that idea i, I re i'm really captivated by that and if that is true then i would say that bruce wayne cannot retire he has never learned to cope with his grief yeah. outside of batman so he, he would have to be this old crotchety Batman that's going around because that's, that's just who he is at this point. I mean, for me, I'm more of the vein of like, I see how popular Miles Morales is as a character. Be like, he's probably even, you know, getting to be more recognizable. Maybe in 20, 30 years, he will be the definitive Spider-Man. It almost feels like, like maybe the Peter Parker thing uh, fades away. And so I kind of wonder like, can we just get Batman beyond to be the new Batman? Can Terry step in there? <laughs> can he join the main continuity and just let Bruce Wayne, you know, have a life? And then you just literally, for a decade, just let it be a new person is Batman. But Michael, give me your thought here. Okay, so a lot of upheaval is happening with Batman right now in present day comics. They have the Batman Catwoman story where he's retired. Because he got married, right? He married Catwoman, he had got, a baby. He got, he got married, uh, had a baby, had Helena Wayne, who now Helena Wayne is the Batman. Oh. And Dick Grayson is basically the Commissioner Gordon at this so point. So they did a time jump. Yes, it takes place way in the future. Cool. Batman is retired, Catwoman is retired. Helena Wayne is probably either late 20s-ish Batman, something like that. Also, in a lot of different stories, Fear State just finished up, which was pretty bad, but basically... Batman is gone. Like, Batman is almost, like, in a lot of stories, sort of phased out. There's also a, a new story called, like, The New Batman, and it's Lucius Fox's, like, second son is Batman. So they've been playing with a lot of elements of, like, what the world would look like post-Bruce Wayne as Batman. And to be honest with you, other than the Helena Wayne stuff... None of it is very interesting. And I will say this, and this is just without getting too far off track, right? Of all of the sidekicks and, you know, underlings of the Bat family, 
most of them have never really been able to escape their Robin persona or their original character idea, except for Dick Grayson, who was able to reestablish as Nightwing and became a full-blown popular character. But even right now, there's technically no Robin sidekick. Damian Wayne is gone doing his own thing. Tim Drake is gone doing his own thing. They're changing his identity as well. I think Batman is a little bit of what both they say Bruce Wayne is the mask, but I also think Bruce Wayne is the demented, mentally damaged person that can never stop being Batman until he dies. I That's what I think myself. Well, that's, that's awesome. I, I think those are really interesting insights you guys are bringing to that. Now, looking to the other side of DC, though, Creators in Motion, not to be confused with our Heroes in Motion segment, is an interview with eight up coming comic book writers for DC's Vertigo line of books. They include Garth Ennis, an Irishman who was writing Preacher, Hitman, and various one-shots for Batman and Judge Dredd and The Punisher at this time. He says, quote, if I wasn't a comic book writer, I'd either be in jail or putting people in jail. <laughs> the other name of note is a young Mark Miller, a Scottish import whose goal is to, quote, bring sleaze and disgust back into comic book writing. Yeah, mission accomplished, Mark. <laughs> your, your body of work speaks well to this. <laughs> Although he was at the time writing Swamp Thing in the wake of Alan Moore's celebrated run, but had also done Scroll Kill Crew for Marvel, and of course would go on to write many seminal stories of Marvel in the 2000s, like Civil War and Old Man Logan. Plus, he had huge success with his creator-owned titles that got turned into movies, so Kick-Ass and Wanted and The Kingsman. And the infamously cancelled Netflix series Jupiter's Legacy is like the one that didn't make it, but pretty much all of them are hits. Um, now, other writers listed include Elaine Lee, who wrote this series called Vamps, about sexy vampire girl bikers. Jonah Nee Reber, who was writing Books of Magic, following Neil Gaiman's miniseries. Ted McKeever, who wrote American Gothic. Jerry Prosser, the writer of Animal Man, until its then-recent cancellation. <laughs> so they're literally interviewing him, you know, like, yeah, so your book got canceled. Stephen T. Siegel, who was writing Sam and Mystery Theater. And finally, Paul Jenkins, who was writing Hellblazer at that time. So all these dark edgy books which of them had you heard of or dared to read if any i mean everybody knew about swamp thing like that was just the thing it was amazing honestly my favorite vertigo stuff comes a little bit later is uh, what's it called a hundred bullets which is really really fantastic stuff and it's like american vampire with that that's really, really cool, too. But other than Swamp Thing, I really wasn't reading Vertigo at this time. It was just kind of too adult for me. Jeff, you tended to be more philosophical than me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> In our friendship, with it, you've always been the one leading those conversations. So did you ever hear of any of these books that were kind of dealing with the, the other side of humanity? No. Again, you know, since my era in comics was more in middle school. So I, I, I didn't want comics to be too adult so especially not in middle school so that really wouldn't have applied to me or appealed to me i should say and then afterwards yeah like as i've uh, gotten back into some comics that level my sister is much more into those kind of level of like graphic novels and yeah that's yeah i was gonna say i saw her posting on facebook the other day about going to the comic book store so interesting i'll just say for me like books of magic is a series i've seen in many a quarter bin <laughs> 
across a lot of books of magic. But also, I did recently read the first two years of Preacher, and it was pretty intense. Mm. So, uh, you know, Garth Ennis on Preacher, I was like, oh, okay, you got some ideas, guy. <laughs> yeah, you would you would be in jail, I think, if you were <laughs> acting on any of the stuff you were writing about. <laughs> Some ideas, guy. <laughs> I've read the first two volumes of Preacher also, and I really liked it. I liked that a lot. Oh, it's it's great characterization. I'm just saying the content might be a little rough for yeah, definitely for adults. Yeah. Now next here, it, the toughest team in comics is an interview with Frank Miller and Jeff Darrow, the creative team behind the Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot comics from the Legend imprint, which are currently being published by Dark Horse Comics. So most interestingly, I would say in the short interview is the pair tell the story of being hit by a truck in traffic while driving in a car together and surviving then to go on and complete this comic, which is why they're the toughest team in comics. For those who don't know, Big Guy and Rusty is about a U.S. soldier in a giant robotic suit of armor teaming up with an atomically powered Japanese-built robot boy to fight kaiju-style monsters. Darrow says his drawing is so detailed that they're planning to publish a king-size collected edition in the 11 by 7 17 dimensions the page were actually drawn in so it could be fully appreciated i will say i actually saw one of these giant books at a used bookstore a while back but the cover was ripped so i was like ah, i don't know if i need it because i was like i know we're going to cover this eventually but i was like ah, i don't want to pay because it was like 14 bucks <laughs> for a ripped book i was like no but the idea does eventually get developed into a cartoon series on fox kids in 1999 i don't know if you guys have any recollection of big guy and rusty the boy robot uh, can't say I do, no. Jeff, you like those big robots fighting monsters? I do not, but I do like <laughs> I the do image. It, I've, I've seen this before. I've definitely not read it or familiar with it at all. Oh, okay. Well, I, I did read through the first few issues eventually, and I will just say it's visual overkill in terms of detail. Like, you would literally have to stare at a single page or, you know, panel. A lot of them are just, like, giant panels, the page itself, for, like, 30 minutes. If you wanted to break down all the details, there are so many characters and monsters, the details in the buildings, the cars. Like, literally, it is so, like, finely packed with everything. And, it, you know, again, for those who maybe know a little bit more about like early anime rusty is basically a cuter astro boy and big guy is gigantor that's basically what this is it's a team up you know but it's kind of once you read it the it's got very boring like you know determined soldier character inside the armor and the evil mastermind monster dialogue that's what frank miller is bringing to it because they they said they work in the marvel method so darrow just takes months and months to draw these pages and then miller gets them he's like oh well write some words here and so or balloons you know so he's not i don't think he was doing very much plotting or anything it was just like go ahead jeff do what you gotta do <laughs> i'll write tough guy dialogue <laughs> but finally there's not enough toy news i would say to fill a full segment to this issue but warner brothers has created a dedicated branch of their company called warner brothers toys which is focused on developing their movie brands into toy lines uh also mentioned are a hercules the legendary journeys line from toy viz that includes three different Hercules figures, Aeolus, Ares, the God of War, and Xena, Warrior Princess, who eventually gets her own toy line. Jeff, did you have any of these Hercules toys? No. Or just Star Trek? Okay. Yeah. No. 
I remember action figures in your bedroom in the box hanging up, but I couldn't remember if there was a Hercules one there. I don't know why I thought there would be. <laughs> Do you like the show? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Also, there are a mention of a few paint application variants in the Batman Forever line, specifically like on Robin's mask. We'll have a different shading or different outline colors, kind of very detailed work by Sean Ani, who wrote this particular article. But with that mention of Batman Forever, uh, I think that's our cue to take in a matinee of Heroes in Motion. Pros react to Batman Forever, gathers reviews from comic book writers and artists who saw the 1995 Bat blockbuster in theaters. Mark Wade says, I loved it. I haven't enjoyed a comics movie so much since Superman the movie. Sure, you have to turn your brain off at the door, but unlike the first two, this one has a plot and I'm appreciative. It has a plot? Really? <laughs> it does? Um, I thought the Riddler's master plan was over the top and not something we do in a comic book, but chances are too great that you could go into a comic shop, throw a stick, and hit a comic with a sillier master plan. I'm going again. I liked it so much. Oh, gushing review from Mark Wade there. Uh, let's see Was on the it? other side, Jeff. What, what did Peter David have to say about that? Peter David, who wrote the movie's novelization, said, There were some fundamental weaknesses in the script that the direction and acting couldn't surmount. But they produced exactly the movie that they set out to produce. They wanted to save the Batman franchise and make him more friendly than in the first two. Batman Forever is much more evocative of the TV show. The script also managed the amazing feat of taking Two-Face and making him one note. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Jurgens says it was pretty enjoyable, but I thought Val Kilmer was too wooden, especially as Bruce Wayne. To me, Michael Keaton had more of a twinkle in his eye, but Robin was a breath of fresh air. He showed how important Robin is to the legend of Batman. Without Robin, this movie would have been awful. And I love the mention of Metropolis. Jurgens also noted how much seemed inspired by the TV show: the hidden escape shoots, Riddler's gizmo, the Robin chase death trap, Robin's holy rusted metal line, and the tilted camera angles. Quote, overall, it was a lot of fun and less claustrophobic than the first two. <laughs> Brian Polito says, it was like being at an amusement park. It had killer camera moves, lighting, <laughs> art direction, and costumes. The cast was great. Nicole Kidman may make a good lady death. And Joel Schumacher can direct an evil Ernie movie anytime. Okay, so you guys weren't here last issue, but Brian Polito created an animatronic suit that a, an actor could wear because he said he wanted to make an evil Ernie movie. So this is him just like continuing to push that idea. <laughs> oh, you want me to review this movie? Well, they could be in my movie. <laughs> I, I kind of want to read the Alex Ross one, too. Okay, go for it. I enjoyed the movie's look. It was very exciting and beautiful. The circus just blew me away with the huge st statues and everything. I was very entertained, but if I'd stopped to think about the plot, I'd have gone insane. <laughs> the, 
<laughs> the only negative is that the Batman movies affect how the entire industry decides to make superhero film. They don't respect the material or realize that these movies don't have to be huge budget epics. It could have been like Batman Year One and been made on a shoestring budget too. Oh, yes, some good ideas, that Alex Ross. Alex also. Ross, mic drop, walks out the room. It's true. <laughs> I'll see you on Kingdom Come, pal. On the other side of DC Universe. We get a report that Superman actor Christopher Reeve had been in a horse riding accident that paralyzed him and that the people of Metropolis, Illinois, had been writing letters to support him nonstop. Mm. Wizard even provides the address so that readers can write to their big screen hero. Mm. What do you guys recall about hearing this news jeff i know this was big for you yeah i mean i don't it's not one of those like you know where you remember exactly where you were but i definitely remember that like just like the shock and just the surety like that you knew he like he he's he's gonna recover he has to recover there's no possible way that he can't recover like it was just it was yeah, it was just disbelief. Yeah, because I remember how excited you were when he appeared on Smallville, when he was finally in there in a cameo, and you were like, oh, this is so awesome, he's back. Yeah, but, although that was less about him, and that was more about the show and the homage to... Paying, yeah, paying exactly. homage to him, yeah. This was heartbreaking to me, because it was like, how can Superman be broken? Yep. And it, it killed me, because I was like, you know, you, you just have him on this pedestal of being this bigger-than-life person because Christopher Reeve, he embodied what the idea of Superman was. And to hear about this story, it was just devastating. And I actually have a close relationship to this story because one of my best friends from college, when she graduated began work for the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. And she used to do all these different events for paraplegic and quadriplegic and worked closely with Christopher Reeve and his children and Dana Reeve when she fell ill to cancer. And she would just tell me stories. And I was like, it was one of those things where I was like, I want to ask so badly to like get an autograph, even though I know he can't sign anything. But I was just like, it's just kind of cool. Like she'd be like, I'd have a conversation with him and... He was still that guy, even though he was in a wheelchair and he couldn't move, but he was still Superman. Like you could, you could feel it. And it was just kind of an interesting story. Yeah. But everything you guys said, I'll just echo that. Like just, he was an icon. So it was so hard to believe yeah. that that kind of thing could happen. And it was just like, wow. And then the fact that he was so public for so many years following that like, yeah. was awesome. But let's move on to some laughs. Yeah, sure, yeah. Let's, let's brighten the sucker up, okay. <laughs> Upcoming guests on Space Ghost Coast to Coast are listed as Hulk Hogan, Alice Cooper, Sandra Bernhard, David Byrne, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, and Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons. Jeff was a big fan of this show. Did you ever have a favorite guest? No, I mean, honestly... Space Ghost is the is the star of the show. The yeah. guests just kind of got in the way. Like honestly, I never had a single guest that I was like, "Oh, they were so great." No, they were just fodder. 
Cause, yeah. And it was funny because it's the opposite of, you know, you watch David Letterman, you watch something like that. Even David Letterman, where he's supposed to be funny, but you're there to watch the guest. It was always the opposite. You watch Space Ghost for Space Ghost. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Matt Groening has never been more boring than when he was on Space Ghost. <laughs> and I think he was trying to be. Like, he was just, you know, trying to be dull and let Space Ghost be crazy. I watched Space Ghost for Space Ghost. And then when they did Harvey Birdman... I was like, okay, Space Ghost is not here, but I'm going to continue watching because it it's the same kind of look. <laughs> it's kind of my thing. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I watch it for Space Ghost, not for the guests myself. This issue features a casting call for a live-action Wildcats movie. What do you guys think of these choices? Well, okay, so Wildcats, actually, I feel like I liked Wildcats better than I liked Youngblood, even though they're virtually the, the exact same. Wow. And, um, uh, Spartan was weird because he's like a robot man, and he was their, like, leader. Grifter was really cool. Grifter was, was he an insur... Or wait, was what's-his-name already around from Watchmen? Well, yeah, Watchmen Rorschach? was the 80s, so... Okay. Rorschach. Oh, so, then, so you, that you, so you think he's similar to Rorschach? Grifter okay. is a spinoff of Rorschach, definitely. You think so? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just because he has a mask over his face? No, because he, he had the same the, the same kind of attitude, and he was just all of his character. Like, he was definitely that sort of a character. That's an interesting take. We'll see. What do you guys think on social media? You tell us. Is Grifter inspired by Rorschach? Okay. And then Voodoo was kind of cool, but she was like a stripper that, like, what was she doing here? Zealot was pretty awesome. I liked her a lot. Lord Amp was supposed to be a little person. Well, let's talk about some of the choices okay. for those characters that you mentioned thus far, because they want Dolph Lundgren to play Spartan. No, Terrible. That's, that's horrible. That's a horrible <laughs> choice. Who's a good robot man, Jeff? No, well, because he's got to be like... Because, I mean, you can see the picture of Spartan, where he was your stereotypical white, blonde, hunk guy. Sean Clone Van Damme. So, like, today, it would obviously be Tom Hardy or a Chris. Like, those would obviously... Actually, you know what? Chris Pratt would have been a pretty good Spartan. I would agree, yes. I would Like, you guys are not playing into what Wizard's doing right, here. Chris right, Pratt was right. our age he in was 1995. Like <laughs> but so I would say it's Van, go... Van Damme, myself. Oh, Van but he Damme played the all-American Guile in Street Fighter. Yes, yeah, <laughs> no. and he played a cyborg. Remember, yes, in he Cyborg, did. Yeah. he did. Uh, but he doesn't need to like kick anybody. He would have found ways to kick people, and Spartan <laughs> blasts people with his hands. You don't want to see Spartan do a split. Okay, William H Macy, done deal. William H Macy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Liam Neeson. I don't know about that. All right, let's move on to Grifter. Brad Pitt as Grifter. And this is 95 Brad Pitt? I mean, Brad Pitt can do anything. We know that now. But, yeah, I mean, especially I'm thinking of the Thelma and Louise Brad Pitt. Like, that's – because they're talking about – uh, interview with a vampire. No, 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 that's too broody and sexy. Like, no, no, no. There's no broody sexy with Grifter. Yeah, but you need rough redneck. I'm, I'm going to pull yeah. an audible here, and I'm going to say Christian Slater would have been better Grifter. Oh, he would have been pretty uh, good, actually, just okay. with the smart aleck attitude. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. They were both in True Romance. Yep. <laughs> That's true. Uh, for Voodoo, they wanted Vanessa Williams. And it's like, I guess. I mean, I you want to know why? Williams. Why? Because she won Miss America, and then she did Playboy. That's what they. Uh, well, there you go. So and she, she fits. And, and she and she got her Miss America award taken away by doing that. 
Uh-huh. But that's why they pulled that card. So controversial and uh, Voodoo is operating in that realm. Okay. Yeah. Now Zealot, they went Brigitte Nielsen no. because she had played Red no. Sonia. Horrible. No, no. But can you think of an actress from that era who could carry that kind of weight to be a cool warrior? They didn't create roles like that back then, though. Yeah. So that's the tough part to get, because you would get like a like a Ming-Na Wen or somebody from today that could do all of this while still acting. And I don't think Brigitte... Yeah. Is, Lucy is Lawless either. as Zealot. Just give her a white wig... Get it done. Because she was like the warrior princess. She was the character that we knew that could be the tough, sword-wielding female, you know, action star. So. Yeah. Or Cynthia Rothrock. Not much of an actress, but... <laughs> All right, for Warblade, Greco! Richard Greco, you see right through me. <laughs> <laughs> Warblade, Richard Greco with big, sharp fingers. Why not? Warblade was very one-dimensional, wasn't he? Well, he was like their version of Shatterstar. Richard Grieco is pretty one-dimensional also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. For Maul, Stephen Baldwin. I have no idea why, because the character of Maul was basically like Bruce Banner. He was like a scientist guy that was nerdy, and then he turned into a big hulking monster. So why they like thought Stephen kid. Baldwin... No, that was, I think you're thinking of Bad Rock from Young oh, Blood. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's what I'm thinking of. Why not do, like, Patrick Swayze? Wouldn't that be better? Ooh, I think Neil Patrick Harris. But back then, he, would be back cool. then he was 95? like... He was probably about. He was cool, because Doogie Howser was the '80s, and yeah, so he's in his 20s by the '90s, uh, mid '90s. I don't know about. I mean, <laughs> so still a little young, maybe. But for Lord Ebb, you talked about having to need a little person, oh. uh, but I guess they figured they could do it with CGI. Well, or just they would ignore it. But the, you got to go with Warwick Davis. I mean, come on, like, uh, who else? Who else would but you Warwick go Davis with? Warwick Davis is so young. Lord Ebb is supposed to be this character that has like a, an eternity of experience. In 95? No, but I think... Yeah, I think he was in, doing the Leprechaun movies when yeah. he was in his 20s. Exactly. He just do, well, he what? already done Willow, right? Yeah. Why don't so, you just do Danny DeVito? Oh, actually, Danny <laughs> DeVito would be pretty good. Every he short character, Danny DeVito. Yeah. For Void, they wanted Victoria's Secret catalog model, Stephanie Seymour. That's fine. Yeah, and it's just like a she character She talks like a robot. Yeah, it's just you have a robot voice. Now... For the villain side of things, I don't think any of the Wildcats villains were very memorable. So for Hellspot, they <laughs> wanted a Michael Wincott, uh, who would be mostly, I mean, you just needed a voice, you know, and he was the bad guy in The Crow. He's got a heck And of he was a in voice. Robin Hood Prince Thieves. Yeah. Hightower, I don't even care. They want Sonny Landon <laughs> for Predator. But sure. he's like, I don't know who that character is. Tapestry, they want Sadie Frost for Bram Stoker's Dracula? Sure. Yeah. And finally, <laughs> Dan Quayle as himself. <laughs> <laughs> That is pretty hilarious. I do remember Dan Quayle, though, in the Wildcats. Well, because he was a... He was the butt of a lot of jokes. Exactly. I mean, that was the era, yeah. No, he was taken over by a Damonite. Well, there you have it, guys. Oh, comics and movies. But uh, we're going to get into another big hobby at this time. So, Jeff, why don't you take us into Gambit's Deck of Cards? All 
right, so this issue features a four-page ad for FLIR 95 Ultra Fox Kids Network Premier Edition trading cards. Wow, you got all that out. Right? <laughs> it features uh, 150 cards spread between five different shows, The Tick, Spider-Man the Animated Series, X-Men, Extravaganza and Bobby's World. There are 10 different suspended animation cards, plastic with a clear background, and 24 power pop-up cards, which are 3D figures that fold up from the flat card. Also announces the Marvel Masterpieces 95 with painted art by the same artists who did the 95 Ultra X-Men and Spider-Man sets. Chase cards include 24 cards printed on canvas stock, 14 hollow flash cards on etched holographic foil, and nine lenticular cards, which contain four different paintings on each card. And then there's DC Villains, the Dark Judgment series by Skybox, a 90-card set featuring painted art of uh, Bane, Bizarro, Catwoman, Two-Face, and more DC bad guys created by artists like um, Bill Sienkiewicz, Simon Bisley, and others. Chase cards include a nine-specter-etched puzzle card subset called Gathering of Evil, three-foil-embossed villain attack cards, and Two-Face Sky Motion Redemption card, which claims to bring Two-Face to life with 3D animated <laughs> art. Finally, a Fleer Batman Forever trading card is inserted into the soundtrack to Batman Forever, but Wizard says that the main attraction is the U2 song, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. So, Jeff, you are a huge U2 fan, especially at this time. What did you think of this era of the band and that, that song in particular? Well, one, I hate that song. That song hate that feels song. so... I hate that song. Yeah, it feels so... I hate so... that whole album, period. Ugh. It's the intro to our Heroes in Motion segment. I hate <laughs> So, because it wasn't actually on an album, I don't think. I think they released it as a no, single. No, it's just a soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Batman soundtrack, that, like, and that Kiss from a Rose, the whole Batman, ver- oh. I hate that whole soundtrack. It's horrible. <laughs> and... All of those songs have nothing to do with the movie at all. Oh, well, that's definitely true. What's funny is I know the parody by Weird Al, <laughs> which is all about right. going to the dentist, you know? So, numb me, drill me, floss me, bill me. Like, that's, that's what I know. <laughs> yeah. That fully tracks. <laughs> For me, like, this is my era of U2, is that uh, Actung Baby and Zuropa are two of my favorite albums. Pop, I lost a little bit. I'm gaining some recognition for it now. But, yeah, this song I don't think fits. I almost, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm willing to give it a chance, and if Bono, if I find a interview of Bono talking about why it's brilliant, I'll buy it, but uh, <laughs> other than that, I'm just kind of like, it feels like you sold out, and you just made another vertigo. Well, yeah, so, yeah, no, that song is horrible. It's <laughs> one of the worst songs ever, and honestly, wow, at, at the time, made me hate you 2 until probably, oh. yeah, probably maybe a sophomore in college, and I bought the the best of album and thank god that song wasn't on there because i would have thrown the disc away but <laughs> so gen 13 is announced as getting an all chromium 107 card set which features art by j scott campbell aka jeffrey campbell 
Ah, which was your name, Jeff, at this time. That's true. Got married, added a little extra, but I just thought that was interesting. I was like, one of my favorite comic book artists had the same name as my best friend. Kind of odd. Not at this time, though. We didn't know each other. Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, and many others were contributing. Uh, the set also contained swimsuit and battle subsets, plus a special nine-card set which forms a new Gen 13 comic book story. And yes... I have the full set. <laughs> it is in a binder right next to me as we record. Uh, but Jeff. Finally, uh, there's a third Star Trek The Next Generation trading card set being released due to the popularity of the first two. And this one is called the Episode Collection. So Jeff, were you collecting Star Trek cards, comic book trading cards at this time at all? I did the comic book cards. Like I got all of the... The Marvel Universe was that the one the one that that Eric's dad made? Yeah, so Marvel Universe yeah, series yeah, yeah. 2. I got all yeah. of those. Oh, there's the pricing guide. And then <laughs> I told you, and I did like in the Star Trek era, I did get like a, a couple of sets of Star Trek cards. I don't know if this I was looking for this one. I don't know if this is the one that I got. But to be honest, like at this particular time 95, I had switched to the Star Trek and then Star Wars collectible card games. So I was getting those instead. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, uh guys, you know, there was a lot of hype around all the different trading card sets, but a couple of guys who are no strangers to hype, we're going to talk about Jim and Todd's hype machine. So Todd's ego column this month is all about movies. Yeah, specifically, what movies Todd McFarlane likes. Because that's what the kids want to know. He says everybody's always asking him. But strap in here, Michael, because Todd admits to having seen only the first Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies, and only very little of Die Hard. <laughs> Most upsetting to me, though, is that he admits that he hasn't seen Last Action Hero, and Jeff, he never saw Cliffhanger, starring Leon, <laughs> an alumni from our alma mater. <laughs> Yep, yep. They had, like, you know, famous alumni. It was, like, Diane Keaton and Leon from Wait, Diane Keaton went to OCC? She no, did. I don't believe yeah. it. I do you not believe You remember that? Why would yeah. we be talking about Leon then? No, I don't, I don't buy it. I bet you it was, like, Diane Keaton or something like that. Where she <laughs> was probably like a, enrolled there, but she probably was actually right. had a private tutor really teaching. I don't know. Now, the reason behind this, though, is Todd says that action, adventure, and sci-fi are no fun to him, because he draws that stuff all day, and when he watches the movie, he just looks at better ways to lay out what he sees on screen while he's watching. So Todd also says he specifically hates speed, because the characters all make funny quips when their lives are in danger he talks about he's like i'd probably like start talking again like three weeks after that kind of incident but i wouldn't be making jokes instead todd admits to liking small character films like when harry met sally the color purple and radio flyer which he's very clear is about child abuse yeah that todd mcfarlane he's a barrel of laughs this guy yeah, seems like a lot of fun at parties <laughs> i know i just like yeah but it also no jim lee news in this issue what a bum. Wow. What was he doing? What were you doing, Jim? Not drawing, not doing anything. Negotiating his contract with DC eventually. Yeah. <laughs> 
But that brings us to our tally. In this issue, Jim Lee mentioned one time. Todd McFarlane mentioned five times. That brings our total to Jim Lee, 270 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 293. Oh, fast approaching 300. Todd, way to go. But uh, guys, <laughs> Todd may not be the jokester that we would hope for, but uh, Wizard sure thinks they're funny. So let's get into Turok's Top 10. On tonight's top ten list, we've got top ten Batman action figures that didn't quite make it. And number ten, Bosnian Sir Batman with blow your ass away action. <laughs> wow. Oh wow. How do I get the worst ones all the time? Wow. <laughs> number nine, Ebola. <laughs> Ebola infected Batman with real squeeze and pop action. Gross. Ripped from the headlines and disgusting. Gross. Number eight, Batman of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with 80 pounds of bacon action accessory. <laughs> <laughs> Mounty Batman, I kind of want to see that. Yeah. I, I kind of do too. Number seven, bullet riddled Thomas and Martha Wayne in action figures. <laughs> That's good. That's pretty funny. Number six, Victoria's Secret Batman, free with purchase of fancy miracle bra. <laughs> Excellent. Number five, action OJ Batman with white Ford Bronco Batmobile. Cato Kalen Robin mail away offer. <laughs> I would love, I would love a white Bronco Batmobile. I would love it. I would love that so much. Oh my god. Number four. Intestinal distress Batman with action bat tapeworm. Ugh. Wizard. Wizard. Number three. Pantsless Alfred. <laughs> you gotta admit, that's a pretty great visual. Fantastic. There you go. Number two. Blind, drunk, and giggling like a schoolgirl Batman. <laughs> That feels like that should be a YouTube video. Right? Funny or die or something. All right. Here we go. Number one. Sweet Jesus, where's the bathroom, Batman? With fear of God, bad expression. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this is before or after the infamous incident where somebody served x lax brownies to the wizard staff but that may have been very very fresh in their minds <laughs> but guys what a fun conversation this time around wow just two of my best buddies here getting a chance to talk comics hear your thoughts on all this madness in the world in 1995 but jeff you like to look at the madness in a in a, a galaxy beyond so why don't you tell us a little bit about your current podcast and where people can find it right well for one it's not a galaxy beyond that's star wars star <laughs> no, i almost said a galaxy far it far did sound away like that so you like talking about the force being with you eh? <laughs> no no although ironically our second episode and most popular one we got to talk about star trek versus star wars and our guest star was someone who had never 
never seen an episode of Star Trek. So, yeah, that was kind of a one-sided conversation. But, yeah, my uh, podcast with my friend Greg, we do, is called Trekology. Uh, we get to talk about Star Trek, but really Star Trek's just kind of a launching pad to be able to talk about some of the deeper issues that I think Star Trek brings up. So uh, we got a great chance to talk about, like, Star Trek and technology, Star Trek and money, Star Trek and religion, Star Trek and... And then some more nerdy ones, like we just did one about Star Trek and the best premieres or Star Trek's best alien races and uh, and then Star Trek and sentience. So, yeah, it's it's good fun, I think. So it should be available wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are Trek underscore ology. Not Trekology, that's a defunct clothing company. Don't follow them, but Trek underscore ology is us. But maybe if you get a T Public store, you could be the current Trekology clothing there company. You go. Michael, are you coming back for episode fifty? It's the big five zero. I actually wanted to bring something up as well. I don't like how this is starting. <laughs> February marks the thirtieth anniversary of Image. Which I thought was very interesting. I saw that on social media. I was like, all right, that's kind of cool. Do I want to be on for 50? I guess I'll be on 50. Sure. I'll tell you what. If you don't want to hear me on the podcast on 50, let us know on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) We want you back. It's going to be a fun celebration. But you out there also, thank you so much for connecting with us on social media, on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Of course, we continue to bring you more of our YouTube excitement over on Wizards Podcast, our YouTube channel. Well, hopefully we can get Michael in on some of these videos sometime soon here as well. Maybe do a gimmicks grab bag or a long box roulette. We'll get some together. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, and Michael, by the way, Happy two-year anniversary. We've we've been doing this show for two years. Can you believe it? It's crazy. I don't like people that much to talk to them for two years. (laughs) Be glad that I'm here. (laughs) Oh, it's fantastic. And we're glad that you were all here. So keep an eye out for our new episodes of The Wizard Files as well. We will continue that interview series. This year, we're trying to mix it up a little bit and bring in some varied guests. We talked to a lot of behind-the-scenes people from Wizard, and we will continue to be in touch with them. But we got some other folks coming around, too, that have an interesting connection to the world of Wizard and comics from unique points of view. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.